Plastic Surgery Podcast. This is a platform designed for education of plastics, hand, and craniofacial surgery trainees from medical student to master surgeon. Our episodes take you through high-yield topics along with experts in the field in order to maximize your knowledge and refine your techniques. If you like what you hear today, be sure to visit our website, theresidentreview.com, for episodes, outlines, resources, and more. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message from our sponsors. Hi, this is Rosie Tillis, a Duke Plastic Surgery resident. I'm joined today by Dr. Darren McGuire, a third-year ENT resident at Duke, co-founder of Girl Med Media, and the brave recipient of my very first Botox injection attempt two years ago. It worked out well. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> we are so excited to have this opportunity to sit down and talk with our incredible guest, Dr. Laura Defgan. Dr. Defgan's training includes an MPH and medical degree from Johns Hopkins, followed by gem surge residency at Columbia University and plastic surgery fellowship at New York Presbyterian. She's the founder of one of the most well-known skincare lines and plastic surgery brands in the nation, as well as a medical expert and correspondent on multiple television programs, medical journals, and magazines like Women's Health and Vogue. So we can't wait to talk to you a bit about how you navigate the business world and learn a few of your techniques for your well-known, minimally invasive cosmetics practice. Thank you guys so much for having me. Wow, that was such an amazing introduction. I'm really (laughs) excited to chat with you. Um, and this is such a fun honor and opportunity. One of the main things that we really love about your practice is the way that you use non-surgical approaches, but you also do these really elegant surgical cosmetic procedures in the operating room as well. Um, so a lot of our technical talk will probably revolve around the injectable techniques, um, as they are a little newer and there are so many variations that you can do. So where do you typically find like the latest and newest techniques And how do you kind of train yourself on them before you start practicing them on patients? I think that a modern plastic surgeon has to be well-versed and vertically integrated in the entire spectrum of maximally to minimally invasive plastic surgical procedures. And part of the reason that I became so committed to my own personal study of the anatomy and techniques regarding injectables is because I think the world is really changing. And in much the same way that interventional cardiology and the ability to place a tiny groin stent to solve a heart attack has completely upended the world of invasive open heart surgery, I think that injectable suture suspension lifts and the next generation of minimally invasive procedures has totally altered what people want. And, you know, I think about me, my friends, my colleagues, you know, people like you guys, and as much as we love being in the operating room as surgeons, do you want to be on the other end of a scalpel? And, you know, most people would like an alternative that is non-surgical if it can give them a beautiful, safe, and cosmetically acceptable result. So in answer to your question, I really felt that training in injectables was not as much a part of the armamentarium of my skill set when I was graduating my training um, as I wanted it to be. And, um, And I thought that that was really a shame because even though 10 or 15 years ago, injectables were thought to be, you know, not good enough for surgeons, and you know, truly in the realm of people who didn't have expertise in the operating room, the way I think about it is that we are the people who are best suited to minimally invasive techniques because the anatomic mastery and the ability to three-dimensionally appreciate what's going on in the facial skeleton from the periosteum on up is really in our wheelhouse. Um, so I spent a lot of time 
going through anatomy, kind of delving into everything from you know, my old netters textbook to um, videos and um, digital and electronic uh, recreations of um, three-dimensional anatomy and kind of really understanding that. Um, the study of rheology or fluid properties is very important in being able to have mastery with injectable fillers because there are dozens and dozens of FDA approved hyaluronic acid based fillers in the United States and figuring out the best ones for the best tissue types. Um, you know, I think staying up to date with medical journals um, is very important. The, I think no matter what you do in medicine, if you want to be good, you have to stay current and you have to stay current or you're going to go extinct. And we see that happening with a lot of other fields. But many of the things that I learned in medical school not that long ago are not even true anymore. And, um, you know, basic facts like hormone replacement therapy and whether that's good for you and um, the use of statins or when to take a beta blocker and the cascade of how to climb the reconstructive ladder, all of those things were are brand new. You know, the concept of direct to implant reconstruction didn't exist when I was starting my residency. And um, so many of these things have changed. When I was in training, I graduated in 2013 from my plastic and reconstructive surgery years. And, um, you know, it's 2021 now, so not terribly long ago. And eight years ago, when I graduated, I had never seen anyone in New York City do a non-surgical rhinoplasty. And now that's a procedure I've done over 10,000 times. That's a long answer to a short question, but you have to stay current. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. And it's been really awesome to see all of your techniques because like you said, it hasn't been widely popularized until now. And so I know that patient selection for surgery versus injectables is pretty important and more people are going toward injectables, but do you ever see that kind of as a bridge to surgery? Do you, ever, you use that to guide your surgical technique later on or do most people stick with just the injectables? I think it's very common for patients to think of injectables, not just as diagnostic, but also therapeutic, meaning they're therapeutic because they make you look better, but they're diagnostic because they show you the next best alternative that's not quite surgery. So for example, chin augmentation is a great one to think about. Um, micro-nathia or retro-nathia or the combination of micro-retro-nathia can be very unfavorable for the lower third of the face. You know, if the um, gonial angle and cervical mental angle are not defined, you can have a lack of distinction in the border between the face and the neck. A small chin can make the nose appear more protuberant and prominent. So many patients who are not 100% sold on the idea of a chin implant and don't know if they really want to make that permanent surgical commitment might like the idea of, you know, one to four cc's of hyaluronic acid-based filler in the chin. It's fully dissolvable. It's a temporary solution. You know, sometimes I think about it as renting the apartment you think you're going to buy. And if you really like it after a couple of years, then you close the sale. And um, I think that approach to giving people an intermediate stepping stone can also make our world, which is so obvious to people who are in it, but so opaque to other people who are not in it, seem more accessible. And I think you can also see examples of that with tear trough augmentation mm -hmm. um, for a patient who's not quite ready for blepharoplasty. You know, you can do a neuromodulator-based brow lift for someone who's not quite ready for a temporal brow lift. 
Um, you can get um, a beautiful degree of um, lift of the mid face and malar fat pad um, with a combination of suture suspension and cheekbone augmentation for someone who maybe is not ready for a mid face lift. And um, even with non-surgical rhinoplasty, there's a very significant rate of conversion for someone who wants to literally live with the idea of themselves with a straighter and more refined nose and improved nasolabial angle, a little bit more tip definition before they decide whether they really want to look different from their parents. Mm -hmm. And on, on the note of liquid rhinoplasty, it's such a cool technique and any, um, any technical pearls for us? <laughs> Yes, I have so many <laughs> dedicated lectures and like hours oh of gosh, to present. So we could have like a part two on this. But before you do a non-surgical rhinoplasty, my one piece of advice is you should be able to draw the vascular anatomy of the nose from memory perfectly. And if you can't do that, just slowly back away from the patient because um, you can do major significant harm. You know, we're all aware or we should all be aware of the risk of not only intravascular injection, but tissue necrosis, permanent blindness, and even disfigurement like ophthalmoplegia that can happen from inappropriate filler injection. Briefly with non-surgical rhinoplasty, you want to envision the injectable filler as if it were a surgical cartilage graft. And think about not just with the surgical rhinoplasty where you want to reduce, but where you would also want to add. In many, but not all patients with a dorsal pump, there's also some degree of a depressed nasal radix. Mm -hmm. And so creating a little bit of radix definition and height um, can be very beautiful and help in blending a prominent dorsal pump. In terms of nasal tip elevation, in order to improve a hanging columella, um, to improve the nasolabial angle, and to improve the light reflexes on the tip of the nose, what I often do is um, use the tip of the needle beveled down and inject right on the perichondrium of the two paradomal structures in the locations where I want the light reflexes to lie. And so, you know, I have a lot to say about non-surgical rhinoplasty, um, and so this is kind of just grazing the surface, but always do the right thing for the patient. It's a very highly complex procedure, no matter how easy it looks on a 10-second time-lapse Instagram video. Every time I do a non-surgical rhinoplasty, I treat it so deadly serious, like the very first time. It's like a very thought-out procedure, um, and it needs to be appreciated and respected in that way. So what comes first is respect for the anatomy and avoidance of complication. Speaking of the anatomy from an ear, nose, and throat perspective, do you see any significant nasal obstruction or changes in patients' um, sense of the airflow in and out of the nose after you do a, a non-surgical rhinoplasty? To the extent that you can get a little bit of tip rotation, you can have people with a little subjective improvement in airflow. You know, are we changing in a measurable way the internal nasal valve and external nasal valve angles? I am not sure about that. It is just like a jelly gel that we're squirting in the nose. <laughs> so we, we also have to, while it can be very amazing, we also have to put it in its place. It's not as strong as a matchstick cartilage graft you're harvesting from the septum that can truly strut open the nose. Sure. Um, but yeah, you can get some improvements in the nose that are not just cosmetic, but also have some functional component. One great example is in patients who have had a prior surgical rhinoplasty and maybe want some adjustments to it. So it's quite common, as you guys may know, to have ALAR notching um, from a, a slightly aggressive um, closed rhinoplasty incision. 
And so you can use injectable filler to rebuild the alar rim, and it can really take the place of an ear cartilage graft in a way that is surprising. And so it lasts and it holds its shape? Yeah. That's awesome. So you said you graduated in 2013. In less than a decade, you have <laughs> built yourself this huge brand to the point of being, I would say, relatively viral on social media, <laughs> talking in magazine articles about, you know, the latest and greatest in plastic surgery and how social media affects people's, you know, vision of themselves and how they want their face to look. And you've done all of this in less than a, a decade. And how did you go about even starting that journey? And did you think 10 years ago that you would be anywhere near where you are now? No, I didn't. And um, I truly didn't. Um, 10 years ago, or eight, sorry, 10 years ago, I was still in training. Eight years ago when I graduated, um, my main focus was my boards. And so I graduated my training and my, my, the main thing on my mind was collecting cases for my boards. So I was on staff at a bunch of area hospitals. I took as much call as I possibly could. I brought pizzas into the ER staff to ingratiate them to call me for, <laughs> for cases, facial fractures, burns, hand trauma, whatever you've got, decubitus ulcer, I'll do anything. And um, the first year of my practice was really spent um, trying to work. Um, I really love what I do. I love, I think we are so fortunate and blessed to be working in the field of plastic and reconstructive surgery. It's such a broad and beautiful and intricate field. I have so much respect for all of my colleagues who do, do different kinds of things. And in that first year, you know, I was trying to collect cases that met all of the different board selection criteria, so craniofacial, hand, burn, trauma, extremity, torso, um, you know, reconstructive cases, cosmetic cases, I, I was trying to do it all. And, um, and so I spent that first year operating on any person who needed my services, truly. And a lot of those cases were done in the middle of the night. A lot of them were done for patients who were under difficult circumstances or who didn't have health insurance or who were indigent or who otherwise were declined care from other more established plastic surgeons. And it was, it was one of the best experiences of my life, really. It gave me such a great perspective on not only seeing what it was like in other people's shoes, but meeting so many different kinds of people. Um, at times it was crazy. I was pregnant with twins during that first year I graduated. And so I would waddle into an ER at like four in the morning and oh be like, okay, sh show me your severed tendons in your hand. <laughs> and like, let's book an OR. And people looked at me like I was insane because I'm, I don't, this is a, this is a, an audio only podcast, but I'm a somewhat petite person. And I had an extremely <laughs> large abdomen at this time because <laughs> I was like wildly. You know, luckily you can sit for a lot of plastic surgery. Games, and it was totally fine. So I, in answer to your question, no, I had no idea. So I collected cases for my boards. Um, I studied very hard for them. Um, I, um, passed my written and oral boards. Um, and that felt like a huge milestone. And once that happened, I felt like, okay, now I need to figure out who I want to be. And over time, one case turns into five cases. And if you take excellent, safe care of one patient, then the people who 
that patient is close with will hear about what you did. That's a story that you can't not tell. If someone has a ZMC fracture, an orbital floor blowout, or even a kid with a facial laceration, if it looks great and you're a great, nice, available person who's competent and you do beautiful work for them, it's impossible for um, for that child and their family to not remember you. And so truly it was word of mouth. Um, I know you guys are in North Carolina, but you know you may have heard there are a couple of plastic surgeons in New York City. <laughs> there, is, there, there is no shortage of plastic surgeons <laughs> on Park Avenue. And um, certainly there was no need for another person to hang up their shingle, but, um, but really my practice was not built based on social media. It was not built based on um, press or PR. I've never had a PR agent and I still don't have one. Um, it was built one patient at a time and one, one technically executed, meticulously performed case at a time. And um, that is the path, I think, to not only figuring out who you want to be as a surgeon, but also um, figuring out who your um, patients want you to be. You have to figure out what you're good at, what makes you happy. You know, I took note, I've been taking notes mentally and literally for the past eight years on which days I come home and I feel like I have energy because it was such an awesome day and I like love little things. I've really leaned into the things that bring me joy. And so, you know, that little moment when I'm closing an upper blepharoplasty and I'm like, yes, this day is so awesome because I did that. I like those things and I find joy in those little routines. And so the building of my practice was just tiny little moments strung together. And it's like that Aristotle quote, excellence is not an act, but a habit. And you are what you repeatedly do. So it's like that in residency and some of those same values stay with you even when you're in attending. Are there other areas you want to focus in later? I mean, I really love what I do right now. The bulk of my practice is on what I have termed facial optimization, which is a combination of surgical and non-surgical techniques to preserve identity, but also optimize facial beauty. You know, when I was at your guys's stage and age in life and in training, truly, I didn't Truly, I had some second thoughts about plastic surgery as a field. I knew I loved the operations. I knew I loved the patients, but I saw all of these media portrayals of plastic surgery that made me cringe, honestly. Like, you know, a body image ideal that didn't look like me or like anything I thought you could find in nature and just stuff that made me feel icky. I felt like not only as just a person, but also as a woman and a minority woman in a field like this, I thought, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's a different conversation that we can have. Maybe I can do something with my life and work that will create a different type of ideal because we have a lot of responsibility as plastic surgeons. It's not just giving the patient what they want. It's also that we are creating and shaping beauty standards for the next generation of of young people who are growing up and looking at the covers of magazines and looking at the work that we do. And, you know, are they seeing um, a waist to hip ratio that, you know, that defies gravity or are they seeing people who look normal? Are they seeing lips that protrude, protrude beyond the nasal tip? Or are they seeing features that can possibly be something that you may have been born with? And I wanted to just do my little part to change the conversation about what I think of as beautiful and aesthetic. And I felt like 
you know, I wasn't seeing this around me. I certainly wasn't seeing it on entertainment television. And maybe I could, maybe someone would hear what I was saying. Maybe somebody would look at it and think that it looked good. I certainly got really lucky. I caught some breaks. You know, when Vogue and the New York Times called, it was like a really cool call. And I took the call <laughs> and I gave a good answer. <laughs> so those were good breaks. And I had these, I had a couple of like really incredible moments that truly moved the needle for me. Like I, when, when out of nowhere, Bella Hadid decided to Instagram my face mask from my office. I was like, that is really nice of me. And you know, when Jennifer Aniston wore my lip plumper on the cover of InStyle without even telling me, and I read it from a newsstand. That was oh like, literally, those were moments that very much changed my life and um, stuff that was not, was organic, not planned. I had no prior knowledge of, and um, those little things moved the needle for me. Um, and I think the thing that's so magical about what we do is those tiny little moments can happen at any time and any person can do those things for you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I got a degree in MPH, I got an MPH degree as part of my medical degree when I was at Hopkins. And one of the things they said at Bloomberg School of Public Health is that public health is changing lives millions at a time. And I think plastic surgery is just the opposite of that. It's changing lives one at a time. And what we do is a, a very, very unique, very special N equals one experience that we deliver to a patient. And if that can be something special to one person, then that person, whether it's somebody who is well known with a public presence or someone who's just a regular private citizen, any one of those little interactions has the power to move the needle for you. And I think that's something important to remember about career development and business development. Mm -hmm. You have to always think about your first principles and doing the right thing for the patient and do it from the heart. And then the other stuff will follow. I never, mm -hmm. I never worked backward. I never thought like, okay, I'm going to have this gigantic fancy office and a really nice street and a you know I never worked it never worked like that it was like literally one ER case with like a Domino's pizza associated <laughs> with it in the middle of the night at a time and then that slowly builds and so it definitely comes in time and I think the people who I who I have seen burn out and crash and burn and kind of go down less happy paths are ones who are doing it for the wrong reasons. You talked a little bit about how culture and what we see um, shapes our perspective of aesthetics and what beauty is. And um, in the last couple of years, we've seen a, a big rise in um, facial filters on social media and things that change your appearance. And I think people have more control over their brand and their social image and the way that they look more than they ever have before. And I know that you actually developed your own Instagram filter based on your facial optimization techniques. How have you seen the rise of, of social media and these face-changing filters? And I guess I, the term, I actually did a great rounds about this last year, Snapchat <laughs> dysphoria. How has that changed your practice and what people come in wanting and thinking is their ideal aesthetic for what they want their face to look like? Yeah. Or has it changed it at all? I think, I think it cuts both ways. I think that you know, obviously Snapchat dysphoria or dysmorphia had a whole moment because it's kind of this catchy idea, like what the hell's happening to the next generation? Nobody knows what they look like anymore. Everyone is filtered and face tuned and Photoshopped and 
um, they don't even look like themselves. And on one hand, yes, I agree. This is changing our perception of reality. It's as if we're looking at everyone with makeup on all the time and we forget what a natural bare face looks like. And so to some extent, I think it's very problematic. But perhaps it gestures towards something else. Now, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, patients would come into a plastic surgeon's office with a picture of someone else as their inspiration. Now people come into an office with a face-tuned or photoshopped filter of them or a filtered photo of themselves. And so I think while on one hand, the most obvious explanation is like, yeah, Snapchat dysphoria is messing up all our heads. On a deeper level, perhaps what it really means is that we're anchoring to our own selves as the baseline. And what people are seeking is an optimized version of themselves. They're not wanting to look like a different person. They're wanting to look like themselves with a millimeter here and a millimeter there and a little bit of a better skin quality. And, you know, can you help me achieve this? So I think it cuts both ways and I, I get it. I get it. And I do think that people should take a holiday from makeup once in a while and a holiday from a filter and like get to know what they actually look like so they don't feel confused when they see themselves by accident. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it's part of the human condition to want to present your best self to the world. And whether that means you're working on your abs or you're wearing your favorite brand of sneakers or you're parting your hair in a certain way or coloring your grays or Botoxing away your 11 lines or straightening the bridge of your nose. What we do is about confidence. It's not about how you look. It's about how you feel. And many if the most beautiful and transformative changes that I make for a person are not even obviously perceptible to their spouse or their friends or their children. Yeah, I've always liked that explanation of plastic surgery. It's like, that makes you feel more confident in yourself. That's great. We're seeing this big focus on getting minorities and women specifically in surgery and plastic surgery. From your perspective, what have you seen and what can we do early on to prepare our residents and our, even our medical students for those things? You know, partly I don't know the answer to this question, but I will say that finding mentors all around you, whether they look like you or not, can be important. Um, when I was coming of age as a plastic surgeon, there was not one person who I looked up to, but it was an amalgamation of, you know, I'd like a career like that person and a family like that person and an academic life like that person and, you know, the mental bandwidth of that person. And altogether, that would be the, my, my superhero. Um, and so I think trying to identify characteristics that you see in other people that you like and that you can model yourself after can be very helpful. Another thing that I think is important is for people at whatever stage you are in your life to really lean into who you are and what you want to be. It can feel awkward and a little bit uncomfortable to put yourself out there. And, you know, I truly never intended to develop a social media presence. And it shocks me still that people know me in that way. Um, because I was always a very academic and frankly, a little shy person um, growing up. But, you know, I think about some of these deeply held archetypes that we all have in our psyche, like buried deep in our souls from our childhood, like, you know, close your eyes, if you're listening to this and picture, what does a police officer look like? And now picture, what does a preschool teacher look like? And picture, what does a surgeon look like? And what does a doctor look like? And, 
you know, we all have these images, whether we want to articulate them or not, that pop up into our mind because of repeated examples of what we've been conditioned to see. And I think people like you guys and me and surgeons of all stripes and descriptions, just standing up and existing and doing good work and being somebody who others can look at and model after can create a little bit of a silent message for the next generation. There was a point when I, I have six kids, as you may have heard, but um, <laughs> which is another topic entirely. But there was a point when my um, when my oldest son, who's nine now, um, thought that you had to be a woman to be a doctor because I was a doctor. His pediatrician was a woman. His dentist was a woman. And like all the doctors, every time he had ever heard the word doctor, it was a woman. And you know, two out of the three were minority women. And it just was such an interesting moment to me that like this young man growing up in New York City who, you know, looks more like his Caucasian father than me, thinks that minority women are like the archetype of what a doctor looks like. And so it just showed me that that we have we have the power to model and change what other people think just by being good people, ethical people who care about what we do and doing good work and existing out there. And then obviously, I think that the bigger questions about how do we reach out to populations who need our help more and bring other people into the fold, offer more educational opportunities, level unequal playing fields, how do we do all of that stuff? You know, that's important as well. And those questions, you know, are more complicated and certainly deserve a more multidisciplinary conversation. I'll spare you on this podcast since it's recorded for posterity, but I can think of dozens, maybe hundreds of examples of things that didn't go as I would have wanted them to, and that I hope they don't go that way for the next generation in terms of um, the hurdles that I have faced and the challenges. You know, I remember one time as a chief resident, one of my mentors took me to lunch and, um, and he you know, very kindly suggested I look at other geographic areas because I'd never make it in New York City. And I remember that lunch all the time because, you know, here I am, I'm still standing. There's so much more I'd like to accomplish. And I truly believe that success is not a fixed moment in time. It's just success is, it's yours, it's yours every single day to win or lose. Um, and really based on the little tiny decisions. But I think that if you're listening to this, you can define your life however you want to. And if you work very, very hard and you try very, very hard, there are limitless possibilities for you. You may not get everything you want. You may not get it all at the same time. You may not ever get it, but a lot is possible. And we are all capable of so much more than we think we are capable of. I'm so motivated now. I know. <laughs> so that's probably a good note to end on. Well, yeah. Thank you again so, so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule yeah. to talk to us. Oh and my be God. On this podcast. So welcome. This was so fun. I love what you guys are doing. And I'm so excited for you and the next generation. And, um, and I think that you're going to do amazing things. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.